I want to uh, deal with the subject matter of salvation. We're going to deal with salvation as a series, and I'm excited about getting into this series. As I told you last time, I probably will, uh, I will deal with some of the basics of salvation, but as I look around our audience, uh, I recognize that most all of us have dealt with this, uh, you know, this particular subject uh, in, in many different ways. In fact, I talked to Sonny on several occasions, and he's told me his story of his own conversion. And now that I remember, it seemed like you said you spent about six hours in Bible study before you ever came to the point that you really felt like you needed to be uh, immersed into Christ. But he had about a six-hour stand, just solid Bible study there. So I know all of us have dealt with this inside, outside, upside, downside. But I'd like to deal with it really from two angles as far as our audience is concerned. And, and the first angle is because we all need to have a refresher. We all need to go back there so that when we share it with others, we're sharing it accurately. But the other is because we might have individuals who would visit with us, and we certainly have individuals who are watching online, who need these lessons in order to appreciate their own journey. I guess I could add a third, and that is, and this kind of ties into the fourth section of my series, but the culmination of our salvation will really be at that moment when we stand before the Lord and he says, well done. That's going to be the ultimate culmination. Unlike what is predominant within uh, the Christian movement today, this idea which is a false doctrine of once saved, always saved. We need to recognize that salvation is a process, not a point in time. Now I can point to a point in time in which I received the Spirit of God. I can point to a time in which I met Jesus in the water, that's true. But I also have to recognize that like a little baby has to continue to grow, we have to continue to grow in our salvation. And so salvation is a process, and it's a, it's a lifelong process. One day, you and I, God willing, will stand before the Father, and he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the kingdom. And when that particular time comes, the salvation concept will no longer be applicable to you and I, because we will have been, or we will be ushered into that state of eternal, eternal existence with our Savior. Until then, however, the first John chapter 1 passage applies especially the last three verses of that chapter, 8, 9, and 10, as it deals with the process of our life. You must continue to walk in the light if you want to have the ongoing forgiveness of Jesus. And so salvation is a continuing process. What I want to do, as I've already said, is I want to divide this particular series into four sections. Why do we need it? Where do we get it? How do we keep it? And then we'll ultimately talk about the culmination of our salvation. First of all, why do we need it? In order for us to really deal with this particular topic, we've got to actually look at it from the reverse, I think. And we're actually going to spend at least two of our lessons dealing with that. It's not so much why do we need it, but I want to start with why don't we need it? There are a lot of suggestions being made within the religious world today as to why you need salvation. I'm going to offer three of them this morning, none of which are applicable. First of all, you don't need salvation because you're born in sin. That is a false doctrine. It's not of the Lord. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 50, uh, 51 and verse 5, and then we're also going to see Psalm 58 and verse 3. These are two primary passages that are used with, by those who would, be, would claim the Reformation movement, doctrines of life. Not the restoration, but the Reformation. Uh, the, the Luthers, the Calvins, uh, the Zwinglis, the, those individuals, they would claim that you and I are born in sin. 
And the very first passage they would want to use in order to, and I've argued with the Calvinists this morning about this very passage, but the very first passage they'll want to take you to is Psalm chapter 51 and verse 5. So let's read it together. Psalm 51 and 5. Paul, or excuse me, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now for a cursory reading, for somebody who wants to just take it at its uh, kind of a superficial value, it does kind of sound like David was born an evil baby. But I want you to take a deeper look at this passage, and I want you to look at it not through the lens of Calvinism, not through the assumptions that we are born evil. Look at it from the assumptions of what David will say elsewhere, that we were knit together in our mother's womb by God himself. Does God knit evil babies? I don't think so. What God does is perfect. And so to claim that God knits us in our mother's womb, and David goes on to brag about how good it was to be knitted together there, if God knits us together in our mother's womb, and yet we are claiming to be evil babies in our mother's womb, is that not a little blasphemous of us? Go back and read the passage again, but this time read it without the filters, the human filters of human doctrines. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth, in iniquity. What if you stop and you consider the brought forth part of this passage instead of jumping ahead to assuming we are all evil babies when we're born? What if he is saying, I was brought forth into an iniquity context, a world filled with sin? And continue reading. And what if he is saying that in sin did my mother conceive me? Meaning one of two things, perhaps. I don't know much about David's mom. You don't either. The scriptures don't, don't give us a lot of information. It's possible that the, the way that David was conceived was not appropriate. It's possible that that took place. It's equally and probably more so possible that what he is actually saying here is that I was conceived within a context of sin. The world is given over to sin. And within that context, I was brought forth. I emerged into a world given over to sin. So does Psalm 51 and 5 really say that David was born evil? Or does it say that David was born into a context that was evil? Now they'll hasten, once you make those points, they'll hasten to take you to chapter 58. And they'll say, but, 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 but what about chapter 58 and verse 3? So I ask you to flip over there now. Psalm 58 and 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. What well, sounds like the wicked, from the very point of leaving the womb, they're evil. They're wicked. They're estranged. They're cut off from God, from the womb. But then he goes on to say, they go astray from birth, speaking lies. It's those last two words that are very, very significant to this passage. I have yet, and I've held many of them, I have yet held a baby that spoke a lie fresh out of the womb. In fact, the babies I've held, it took quite a while for them to ever learn to speak. So what does that tell you about this particular passage? They're speaking lies from the womb. Clearly, David is using extreme terms. It's called hyperbole, which, by the way, is a very common uh, way of expression within Scripture. Hyperbole is when you use excessive emphasis on a term in order to gain a 
understanding or appreciation. Jesus did this. And if Jesus can do it, then this, that certainly makes it right. But remember when Jesus told us that we need to be careful about judging our brother? If you've got a speck in your eye, but you're trying to take, or excuse me, he's got a speck in his eye, but you're trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye with a log hanging out of your eye? Nobody runs around with a log hanging out of their eye. That's, that's hyperbole. You don't do that. But Jesus wanted to make a point, and so he uses extreme terms to help us gain the point. And the extreme term is, here you got your brother, he's got this little tiny problem. you got this massive problem, but you think that you're going to take care of your brother's little tiny problem. That's what Jesus is trying to say there. Now come back to our passage. As David writes, he says, look, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. It seems like that a child, from the very moment they are, if you will, implanted into this wicked world, that the wickedness of the world begins to encroach upon them. And it does. From the very moment they draw their first breath in this wicked world, there are things that are pressing in upon them. Now, that doesn't mean a child sins, because they're long before the, the point in their, their uh, maturity that they know, even know what sin is, is. They have no way of rebelling. In order to sin, you've got to miss the mark. In order to miss the mark, you've got to aim poorly. A child can't even aim, especially in the womb, seven days out of the womb. A child can't aim. They can't miss the mark. And so I ask you the question I asked in last week, and that is, so a child fresh out of the womb, is that child saved or lost? Neither. To say they're saved means they had to be saved from something. To say they're lost means they did something to be lost. They are just simply innocent. They're of God. They have the image of God. When you hold a newborn child, you are holding something fresh out of the knitting process of God. It's once the world inflicts its influence upon that child, and the child matures to the point that it is able to choose sin, then the child becomes a sinner. Babies are not evil. Do not allow what is a prominent doctrine within Christianity today. Do not allow individuals who call themselves Christians to suggest to you that the reason you need to be saved is because you were an evil baby at birth. You were not. Number two, you do not need to be saved because it's impossible for you to choose the right. This is a second reason that they will. You are totally depraved without even the ability to choose what is true, without the ability to choose what is right. I want to take you now to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we're going to be introduced to the individual who, if anybody, if anybody received original sin, the inheritance of original sin, if anybody did it, it was this guy. It had to be because this is the firstborn of Adam. Original sin, according to their perspective, the false doctrines of Calvinism, the Reformation movement, they would suggest to you that because Adam sinned, it's passed down through the generations, which, by the way, next Sunday we'll talk about that at length. We're going to go to Romans chapter 5. We're not going to deal with it this morning. But they have this idea that we're passed down, that, that, that the evil nature is passed down throughout the generations, even though Ezekiel 18 says specifically that we do not inherit the sin of our father. But they suggest that it's passed down through the generations, making you an evil baby, even within the womb. That you have no ability to choose. You've got an evil nature. And so that you don't even have that. There's no way for you. Even if you wanted to choose God, you couldn't choose God because you've got an evil nature. Well, if that's true, then I ask you to deal with Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain. 
In Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, it says this. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Now, remember, he just rejected his sacrifice. Okay, this is before Cain kills his brother. He's rejected his sacrifice, and uh, he's, he's upset about that. Why are you angry? Why, why is your face fallen? Verse 7. God says, this is God. So if you had a red letter edition, this would be in red. If you do well, will you not be accepted? God said that. Now, let's pause for a moment before you read on. God is saying to Cain, it is possible for you to do well. You can choose the right thing. Now, either God's lying to Cain. He's setting Cain up with a possibility that's not really a possibility, which is what Calvinists would have to conclude. They can, Cain couldn't really choose right, remember? Because he's the product of his dad who fell in the garden He's the first guy to receive original sin. It's impossible for him to choose the right. So why would God say that if he couldn't do it? Why would he give Cain false hope? God is not giving Cain false hope. He is saying, Cain, you've got the ability to choose good. You've got the ability to choose right. But continue reading. He goes on to say, if you do well... Excuse me. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Then he goes, he says at the end, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, but watch this. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Notice two potentials that God places before Cain. Number one, you can do right. Number two, you can choose to conquer sin. He says that. You must rule over it. Sin wants you. It's crouching at the door. It can't wait to devour you. But Cain, if you will use a little self-control, which, by the way, is a fruit of the Spirit, if you use a little self-control, you can choose not to choose sin. Now, either God was setting him up for a potential that really wasn't potential at all. In other words, he was giving a false hope. Or God's lying to him. Or there's a third one, which you and I accept, and that is that God is saying the truth. Cain, you've got the ability to do right. You've got the ability to choose to govern the sinful nature that's crouched at your door. So the second thing I would suggest to you when dealing with salvation is, you don't need salvation because you are, number one, because you're an evil baby born in sin. No, that's not true. Number two, you don't need salvation because you have no ability to choose what is right. You do have the ability to choose right, what is right. In fact, you read, what is it, Romans chapter 2, and it says that the Gentiles who don't even have the law, but because of their conscience, can do the right things in spite of not having the law. We'll deal with that later in our series as well. Number three, why do we need or why don't we need it? Salvation, that it is. We don't need it because God pre-programmed us to be sinners. Although the Calvinists would never say it in that way, that's essentially the conclusion you have to draw. At the end of the day, they want to claim that they give ultimate glory to God because God controls all things. And if God controls all things, then God controls the fact that you're a sinner. In fact, they will admit, if you press them hard enough, that God creates the majority of us for the purpose of going to hell. Before, before creation, God had already decided, I think I'll make Sonny to burn in hell. I think I'll make Nathan to go to heaven to be with me forever. 
And so before, before he even creates Nathan, before he even creates Sonny, he's decided Sonny's going to burn in hell. Nathan's going to get to go to heaven. And they'll claim that that's the definition of predestination, which we'll deal with later on in this series as, as well. The thing about predestination, though, if you'll read, you read Romans chapter 8, and we're going to go there as we touch on predestination. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, and I'll end this sermon. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says this about predestination. Now, this is God limiting himself. Understand, God is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, this is the process. So it's not like me putting God in a box. God has placed himself within these parameters. He says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed, etc., to the image of his Son. Those who he foreknew, he predestined. That's the equation you've got to understand. Predestination is a difficult topic. I get that. How does God predestine, give a destination ahead of time? How does he pre-do that? And you and I still have free will. Well, this passage explains that. Just because God knows ahead of time how you will choose does not mean that God forces you to choose in that manner. It just simply means he knows. He's down the road. He already understands it. Because he lives outside the bubble of time, he knows the big picture. And so because he can go, let's go back to the Nathan Sonny scenario, because he knows that Sonny at the age of, let's just say, 67, so seven years from now, Sonny's going to go off a dark path and he's going to leave the Lord and leave his wife and have a broken family and become an alcoholic and curse God and die in that condition. Even though today I'm preaching the gospel. And by the way, that happens often. I, I've known several preachers who've gone that path. God can predestine my eternal existence based upon what he knows is going to happen seven years from now. I don't know what's going to happen seven years from now. All, I've got, all I can do is walk in the light, keep my focus on the Spirit. But God knows what's going to happen seven years from now. Let's go with Nathan. Let's just say that Nathan takes a dark turn too, but let's just say that after that dark turn, Nathan, he turns back to God. And he comes back here and, and he becomes a preacher at, at this congregation. And he builds the congregation back up to where the audience is full and, and all those kind of things. You know, God knows that Nathan could take that dark turn but come back. Because he's already down there. He's already seen the end of the story. But that doesn't mean he pre, pre, that he pre-forces Nathan to make those choices. He predestines Nathan with regards to where he'll end up based upon what he already knows he's going to do. But he doesn't force Nathan to do it along the way, nor does he force Sonny to do it along the way. These are my choices to make. Now you say, but is that really what... Read the passage. The passage says, what he foreknows, he predestines. Based upon what God knows ahead of time, that's what he predestines. So God doesn't just determine back in the ancient times before creation, well, you know, I like Nathan and I hate Sonny. So we'll send Nathan to heaven and we'll send Sonny to hell. No. What God did back in the ancient times is he looked into the future of Nathan's life and Sonny's life. And he says, based upon what I know, the choices that they'll make, I'm going to predestine them to this place or the other. 
But that doesn't mean Nathan can't choose, and it doesn't mean that Sonny can't choose. Now, that was a little bit complicated. We'll deal with predestination later uh, in a little more of a, a detailed manner. But the reason I wanted to present this lesson first is because I think it's so important for us to recognize that it is true. You need salvation, but you don't need salvation because you're born an evil baby. You don't need salvation because it's impossible for you to choose right. You don't need salvation because God predestined that you be a sinner. You need salvation because you have the free will ability to make choices. That's the Genesis 4 with Cain. You can choose what's right, Cain. You can choose not to open the door and let sin come in. You can rule over that, Cain. You have the ability to make these choices. And so the reason you need salvation is because you make wrong choices. We choose not to follow after God. And in choosing, personally choosing, we become personally responsible. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, we're without excuse. And thus, we need the Savior. I end with this, and we'll deal with it later in greater detail. Acts 17, verses 26 and 27, they're my youngest son's favorite verses. Specifically verse 27. But in Acts 17, 26 and 27, it says that God creates us for the purpose of seeking him. Read it for yourself. But he, he puts you on the timeline exactly where he wanted you. You were born at a time and a place where God wanted you. And the reason he did that was so that you would seek him. That's verse 27. The thing that's interesting about Acts 17 is that it is spoken to total pagans. Individuals who were worshiping false gods. Because those words were given while Paul was visiting Athens. This is the sermon where he talks about the altar to the unknown God. He says in that context to total pagans who don't even know Jehovah, he is saying you have the responsibility to seek God. Now, how can I have the responsibility to seek God if it's already been determined, Sonny Childs, I'm going to make you a sinner. And there's no possible way that you're going to be able, even if you wanted to, you couldn't come to me because you're destined for hell. And Nathan, by the way, even though it sounds good that we've got Nathan in heaven, the fact of the matter is, Nathan, you go to heaven because God made you go to heaven. You don't go to heaven because you choose him according to Calvinism. You got no choice. You're an eternal puppet in glory. And puppets can't worship, by the way. If God is filling his heaven with puppets, he's filling his heaven with people who cannot worship. It's an echo chamber, God manipulating puppets to praise himself using his own words. There's no freedom of choice. There's no opportunity to say, but God, I want to give you this. I know because Christmas season just ended and I shared this with you already, but my favorite Christmas song is something that never even happened. I love the little drummer boy. And I'll tell you why. Because it's something that should happen. You know, the drummer boy, which again, there was no drummer boy, but the drummer boy comes and he says, I don't have anything to give to the king. I mean, gold and frankincense and myrrh, all these, you know, I don't have anything, but I can play my drum. And in the song, as you know, Jesus smiles at him. Again, it doesn't happen, but it should. I don't have a lot that I can give the Lord, but I do have this. 
my will. I am free to do with my will whatever I want. Even a slave can will a different condition. They love to say that, but you're a slave to sin. True. But even a slave can will to have a different condition. Even a slave can will to accept a savior should that savior come along. That's our condition. You have a will. The reason you need salvation is because too often you use that will in the wrong way.